Welcome to the RV Navigator Podcast, your RV lifestyle digital home. Visit the RV Navigator homepage at rvnavigator.com. And now, here are your hosts, Ken and Martha, podcasting from their mobile RV studio that might be parked in a campground near you. This is Ken, your RV navigator. And Martha, the co-pilot. And we're talking to you from our far away from home studio uh, in a nice little condo that we've rented in New Key, spelled New K, Cornwall. That's (laughs) Q-U-A-Y. In southwestern England, United Kingdom, Great Britain. We were kind of wondering if the kingdom would be united because they just had the big vote for Scotland. To secede from the Union, so to speak. But that has um, not been on the radar here No, lately. it seems to be here. over with in terms of all the political talk that we've been seeing on the television. And here we are on a Sunday afternoon in England, and we are about to watch American football being played in London live. Yeah, Can you imagine Stadium. that? I just turned it on by accident. I had no idea this was going to happen. The Raiders versus the Dolphins on, on British TV. Wow. And the stadium looks The world is becoming full. cosmopolitan. What? The stadium looks full. It uh, looks amazingly. Wembley Stadium looks amazingly full. We've had to contend with soccer and rugby and other sports that we... Cricket. Unnamed sports that we have no idea what they are on the TV. But right now... They are going to play something that we know something about. And there's been a lot of discussion about the Ryder Cup, which the Europeans oh, yes, well, tend to lord over us. Since the, it sounds oh, well, like they're winning, more yes, than we yes, do, I think that's yes. Oh well. Oh well. But uh, we are, uh, as Martha mentioned, we have abandoned the RV for the time being, and we have traveled overseas. <laughs> it's it's really interesting how. The flight to London, when we used to do it, uh, it seemed like, oh, long flight, and we, and we planned on it, and now it's kind of a just a medium flight. It's like flying to Florida okay. from Chicago. Well, it's a little bit more than that, but we don't really think about it because it's so short, only eight hours, actually, in this case, seven hours, 26 minutes, and compared to uh, Japan and India... We are actually uh, finding this quite an easy flight to make. <laughs> it's unbelievable how your perspective changes over the years. And with not nearly as many time zones to overcome, the jet right. lag effects have been minimal. We've only had to take about two or three days yeah, to, like to, to overcome the jet lag. Already. Right. Whereas flying 14 to 16 hours, which is what we've done in the past couple of years a couple of times, has taken me two weeks to yeah, recover. Has taken right. Has taken its toll. That's for sure. Most of uh, this RV Navigator podcast will not be about RV, but about Navigator. <laughs> <laughs> you mean this is my show? Uh, okay. <laughs> it's gonna be. We don't have a lot to talk about RVing. However, we did uh, take a brief trip. A, as everybody realizes, we have uh, a fairly new motorhome to us, and we were kind of uh, doing some more break-in. And we took a brief trip. We're, we're going to make this an annual event, I think. It's this a great way to celebrate 
after Labor Day. When oh, all we're, calling, the, we're calling it the retired folks Labor Day. When all of the people who have families <laughs> and jobs uh, have celebrated their last hurrah of the summer, we arrived on the Tuesday after Labor <laughs> well, Day. that's the time. And had the Indiana Dunes pretty much to ourselves. The right. water was still warm. The sun was out. Beautiful. And, and Fabulous we were, weather. We were happy to be camping one more time, having one more set of s'mores, still struggling with where to put all the things in our motorhome and what we need to throw away because our larger motorhome does not have as much room as our smaller motorhome. Go figure. But it was a wonderful last hurrah for the camping season. And then we brought the motorhome home and Ken had to winterize it. Oh, yes. For the first time. We will not be RVing again until after the Christmas holidays. So we're making this the post-Labor Day Labor Day. It's very interesting that I couldn't get a reservation for Friday, Saturday, or Sunday following Labor Day, but I could get a reservation quite easily for Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. So we made this a three-day weekend starting on Tuesday. In the middle of the week. (laughs) It's really nice to camp at that time of year because things are really quite calm and there's uh, very little pressure on the sites and things like that. So we got a nice site with a satellite view and all that sort of good stuff that we're looking for. The satellite uh, did my installation, thank goodness, has uh, gone well, and we have the good satellite connection that we expect uh, for our internet. All the systems seem to be working good. We were plugged in. She was very happy to find a 250 amp. So I could cook with impunity. But we were uh, otherwise without hookups, which was fine for yeah, four nights. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, three nights. So we are very pleased with its operation. And boy, is that fridge nice. It is. The electric cooktops seem to work well. And we had an overnight guest with us Mm. with his dog. Uh, This (laughs) is an old friend who is new to the RVing world, and we wanted to give him a little taste of it at its best. I think he enjoyed the camping experience. How could you not? It was such a beautiful weekend. I say that in quotation marks. But I was disappointed in our fold-out bed, Mm. which kind of folded out. Yeah, unlike our last one into a V, which meant that he was kind of sleeping diagonally across the Grand Canyon. For one night it was okay, but I wouldn't feel comfortable taking somebody on a longer trip with that um, extra bed that we have. Too bad. Because uh, the one in our other uh, earlier motorhome was actually, I thought, quite comfortable for one single. Mm -hmm. Well, it was a little bit bigger than a single, but it was a decent-sized bed. This one was decent-sized, but it was uh, had that crease in the middle and has it's not long enough for one person, even though it's a three-cushion sofa. Our friend is about six feet tall, and he had to sleep diagonally. And... You might be hearing from him in the near future because he is about to take possession of a brand new motorhome. And this will give us a new perspective because he's buying a 25-foot Winnebago and he's a a single person and will be RVing probably a little bit with us. But probably next month we will be talking to him live because he will have taken possession of his new motorhome. I think we mentioned this before, but it will be interesting to talk to somebody who is driving a substantially smaller motorhome. This is actually a, a bigger motorhome than you would expect because it's built on the on the Sprinter chassis, so it's got the standard Mercedes diesel engine, and it is, uh, though, a Class A, so that it has the snub front end, so they, they build a different front end for it than is typical. So we are very excited about that, and uh, everything is go for us, except that our motorhome has been winterized and will be sleeping on 
until we take it out again in uh, the days following Christmas. We'll be heading to Florida. I would have to say here in Cornwall, we feel like we are in a camping mecca um, <laughs> as we drive around the narrow little lanes and twisting, winding roads, and in some cases, grades of up to 16%, which is kind of exciting. We see lots of turnoffs for campgrounds. The way the roads are constructed, configured here you have a very narrow road lined with a very steep <laughs> perpendicular fence. I'll put a picture or two on the web. Some, <laughs> they are unbelievable. Sometimes the fences are fences the way you would think of a fence and sometimes more often they are made of stone and because well, they have been here for hundreds of years the stone is covered with all sorts of vegetation. And they are tall. So you're never quite sure how close you really are to the stone wall that you're driving alongside. It's quite hair-raising. So my point is, even though I know I'm going past campgrounds, I can't see them because of these high walls that are so common here in Florida. So they're 8 or 10 feet high, and sometimes they even curve over into the middle of the road, and it's small for a car. So the RVs that they use here are very small. For the most part. I saw one what I would call... Class A towing a car. Well, they're Class A's, but they just are not as big as ours by any st- On a motorway. I don't know where he went. So this Winnebago that. that our friend is buying. Would be <laughs> large here. Would, well, would be, yes, would be considered uh, full-sized, whereas we consider it kind of small. But that's uh, that makes uh, RVing very interesting here. Most of the RVs are pulled by very small cars, or they are very small Class A's. They have but lots of campgrounds, and so you see the roads have been just full of them um, going here, there, and everywhere. And when we go to attractions, we see them parked in the parking lots. They're touring their country. It's my impression that these campgrounds are a mix of motor... Well, what should mm. I say? Of, of, of <laughs> they even have a wigwam one. <laughs> yeah, a yurt. Um, what I was trying no, to say is, is there a combination of mobile homes and <clears throat> motorized towed or mm. small drivable vehicles. So they're kind of half and half mixed, as many of our campgrounds are in Florida and Arizona. We yes, see a lot of yes, combo think, type yes. places. And they have ensuite. Which means you get bathroom your own bathroom on your campsite. Bathroom and uh, sometimes a little kitchen and sitting area. So it's a little room that you could use uh, in addition to your RV. But their RVs don't have uh, the big tanks like ours do and they don't carry a lot of water. Most of them don't have any gray. And when you talk about at a campground, when you talk about hooking up, it's uh, electric. And sometimes you can fill your water tank. But that's about it. There's no full hookups that I know of that I've seen. But we're not experts at camping in England. Camping is a little bit different of a style here because you have to understand that we drove from Heathrow, which is in London on the basically the east coast of England. We drove all the way to the farthest west point that you could drive in four hours, mm-hmm. four and a half hours. Mm-hmm. So... RVing is not something, well, you go and sit someplace, you don't basically drive around, I don't think. Whereas we might <laughs> take several days to drive to get to someplace, that's virtually impossible here. You can easily drive from London to Edinburgh, Scotland, in a, day, in a few hours. 
So England is just plain not that big. As is the case with many European countries. Yes. But the coastline is spectacularly beautiful, and as we've driven around, there have been places where we have pulled off to stop to take pictures, and occasionally we've seen small RVs parked there as well. We've kind of speculated whether they're boondocking, but we suspect that they really can't because they don't have enough uh, holding tanks for fresh or great water. And batteries and that sort of stuff. Because their RVs have to be very light because of the gas situation and because of the towing situation. The vehicles that tow these (laughs) are regular small cars. We would never consider towing. We're driving a small rental car, um, which is a diesel, and we are well aware of the price of diesel because we figured out that we're spending $8.37 a gallon for fuel. Well, when we we pulled into the the rent-a-car place, they said, oh, here's your rent-a-car. Just go out there and pick anyone in Lot 2. Really? So we went out to Lot 2 and looked at all the cars. Now, none of the cars were anything that I recognized. Uh, They were Peugeots, Renaults. Citron, various Japanese cars of different kinds, and then a couple of British ones. And so I didn't recognize any of the cars. So they were all very small, which is what we had decided to rent. We'd rented the smallest four-door that you could rent. The only one that had a diesel engine, and I kind of thought that I would like to have a diesel, was this uh, Peugeot. We chose a blue Peugeot, obviously a French car. It had a diesel engine, and I was wanting to have a diesel because I like the idea of diesels. The diesel is uh, very fuel efficient and has great torque. <laughs> and you are not really all that used to stick shift, although I have done stick shift many times, uh, the, having an engine with a lot of torque so that you can't stall it out or go chug, 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 which you often do when you're starting off your basic gas engine. So I decided to choose the diesel, and I'm happy that I have. This little engine just chugs away, and I cannot stall it. In first gear, I can virtually pop the clutch and not uh, stall out that engine because the torque. uh, And it runs along at 2,000 RPM, just like our big diesel in the motorhome. And it's very happy and has a very broad torque range so that shifting is not (laughs) critical. These little sewing machine engines that, that... many of these small cars have that uh, are high revving and very peaky torque uh, are uh, problematic if you're (laughs) not used to good shifting. So I have a stick shift, needless to say, and uh, we have had a lot of hill, oh, a lot of hills, and narrow roads which require a lot of shifting. Driving on the left, so I'm shifting with my other hand, which uh, leads to less than precision shifts, and the feet are the same. The gas pedal is on the far right, just as it is in a, in a left-hand drive car. So it's only been a few times that we've gotten in on the wrong side. <laughs> <laughs> because everybody drives on the wrong side of the road here. And it's not so bad when you have someone else to follow, but when you first head out, it, it's a little disconcerting. And certainly navigation here is disconcerting for the navigator. This is not necessarily um, just an English problem, but in Europe the roads were built thousands of years ago <laughs> for cars. Very narrow. 
uh, they wind, oh. they're narrow, and the typical intersection here is called a roundabout yes, or a traffic really circle. And every time I think I've got Ken on the right road and he's gotten up to second or third gear, we encounter another road intersection, which is a roundabout, and we have to decide which of the many spurs that come into the roundabout are the ones that we need to leave. And he has to be in the right lane, and he has to get off at the right moment, or else we are on the wrong road once again. So you can't just sit back and relax and say, okay, we're on the A30, we're good to go, because the A30 twists and turns, and you never know when another roundabout will rear its ugly head, and you'll have to make another decision. Yes, but overall, I... It, the roundabouts are actually kind of a good idea because they make traffic flow along pretty well under most circumstances because nobody has to stop. You know, you can drive through and make through a lot of intersections and there's no stoplights. It's just everybody kind of goes out into the roundabout and does their thing. But you have to be very alert but, and merge at the right moment. Yeah. And there are times when you have to stop because there's right. too much traffic in the roundabout for you to enter. But where roundabouts fall down is when the traffic is heavy. Because that's when well, you have to wait a long time just to get out into the roundabout. And there might be three deep cars and people can't get into the right lane to get off. So roundabouts have their advantages. And I think more and more places in the United States, I remember we were out in uh, Arizona, that uh, we enjoyed a lot of roundabouts. Uh, but we have had uh, good luck with the car so far. And my driving on the left hand side has gotten to be almost normal. He's amazing how quickly he adjusts, <laughs> even with that leg. Uh, so the other thing that really thrills me for a loop is the there are small two-lane roads. Okay, it's a two-lane road. It's small. And then they make designated parking with oh, yes. lines, you know, painted on the pavement like for a parking place. Taking up in, one of the lanes. In the middle of one of the lanes. Road rage mustn't be a big deal here because everybody has to learn to be polite, to watch, and to take turns. Because you even when you're on the right lane of your own road, it could just kind of peter off all of a sudden because it's turned into a parking place and so then you have to stop and wait if nobody's coming on the other lane then you can proceed uh it's all quite amazing but that's why we travel and we came to cornwall because of the scenic shoreline beauty we've been here a couple of uh, times previous to this and we were very impressed with the cute little seaside villages and that sort of thing We've overall found England to be lacking in scenic beauty. You go to the Cotswolds or you go to the Lake Country and you just say, oh, well, here I am in Wisconsin, which is not all that impressive. You know, it's nice for local people but and nice places to visit, but, you know, in terms of national pride in a location to visit, it's not much. But we were impressed with the Cornwall area. And Cornwall is in the very, as we mentioned earlier, is in the very southwest corner of England. And it's about five or six hours from London. For a lot of people, it's a long way away. It's, they talk about it like being in Upper Maine or Montana or someplace. But it's really not that far away. But it has a very rocky coast and little harbors that have very picturesque boats. Makes me think Plus, a little bit of Maine. Yes, very much, but, but much more, more like, more like, frankly, like Oregon, the coast, or along Route One in California. 
And certainly the villages are very picturesque because yes. many of the buildings in them were built hundreds and hundreds of hundreds. years ago. And um, so they are quaint in and of themselves. And in this damp, cool climate, flowers grow enthusiastically. So they're beautifully decorated with big hanging balls of flowers and people have planters hanging out of their windows. And it's just very picturesque. Coming at this time of year, which we are really at the tail end of the season, we are uh, finding things to be still open, but uncrowded and people are very friendly and helpful <laughs> we're staying here in new k because this is a place where we could find a decent rental for a condo you know we don't like to stay in it's like with the rv you know we like to bring all of our stuff and have it with us and having a condo means you've got a bedroom and you've got a kitchen because we haven't eaten any dinners out no and so basically we eat lunch out and then have breakfast and dinner in the in our room because we have a, a nice little kitchen, we have a nice sofa and TV, and, and we're staying in three different ones at three different times for three different weeks. We're doing the hub-and-spoke thing, but we, we're staying here in Nuke, and Nuke is really kind of a strange town because it is the surfing capital of England. And there are our next-door neighbors, as well as many of the people we see, are have their wetsuits on and they're going with their surfboards down to the water. We are only a block and a half from the ocean. We look at the waves and say, you're surfing in that? <laughs> Compared to places like Hawaii and Australia where they do real surfing, the surfing here is tame. Tame, tame. Let's be kind and say it's a good place to learn. At this time of year, anyway. I don't know, maybe other times of year the waves are huge and giant, and it's great surfing. But it's, <laughs> these people, I don't know. I don't think they're getting their money's worth. And the town, this town is very ticky-tacky. We can't recommend this town, but uh, within a few minutes' drive, we have been to several fascinating little villages, artist communities. We went to the, <laughs> oh, the food fair, which we tasted everything from this area they had a lot of seafood a lot of cheese a lot of and they cream, and they, ice cream they're very um, disparaging things to say about our lobsters too yeah they think there's we think Maine lobsters are really good unfortunately yeah. we didn't have the money to try it but the guy was they catch lobsters right here and have lobster pots so and crab very tons good. of crab Apples are big here, and they make a lot of them into a cider that's slightly alcoholic, so we had a lot of different samples of that. More than um, beer. Chocolate was oh. another big thing in the food fair. This whole area is becoming very foodie, it's our yeah. understanding. Yeah. And there are many classy restaurants, uh, Michelin-rated restaurants and that sort of stuff. So that's not our thing, but uh, it was fun to go to the local food festival and hear about the... Uh, the local food. And as we travel around, of course, we have to pull out that old credit card every so often. Those of you who have traveled in Europe may already be aware of the fact that our credit cards are fairly medieval and what the Europeans because they only have the magnetic stripe what the Europeans use is a chip and pin so it has a um, chip embedded in it that you can see and a pin number attached to the credit card so when people like us come with our magnetic stripe and try to use an uh, automated machine like to buy a ticket for something often your credit card does not work so um, I think we are in the process of Entering the modern world, but we haven't gotten there yet. 
We do have a chip and pin card. Well, we have a chip and sign card, which is a problem, too, because we can't enter a pin. So it has the chip in it, but we have to sign. Uh, and which that works seems fine if there's a vendor. To work, right, that seems to work pretty well because the cards, machines that they have here, you slip your card into it instead of swiping it, and it reads the chip. I don't know exactly what's on the chip, but it seems to read it and make it uh, make the transaction. So that has worked out well, uh, and if you're coming to Europe, I would definitely suggest that along with your ATM card because the ATM cards work well and there are tons of machines at least here in England. And nobody takes traveler's checks anymore. Well, we don't know that. Well, we know that. But, you know, as I watched the football game here, what I was going to watch this afternoon was the Chicago Bears play football. I was going to watch it with my simple TV, which I have hooked up to my Internet connection at home. Boy, if you know, if you're interested in watching stuff from home, the simple TV is great. I brought along the Roku box, and the Roku box uh, is a lot like the Apple box, but uh, it's substantially smaller, so I didn't bring it. But it has uh, apps that you download and use. Unfortunately, most of the apps don't work here in England because we are outside the United States and the providers do not provide service outside the United States. So my HBO Go doesn't work. My Showtime doesn't work. Amazon and Netflix. Amazon Netflix don't work. But because the Simple TV is owned by me and it's broadcast from my house on my Internet... I can connect up to it here and watch the Chicago Bears or the news or whatever I want to watch on over-the-air channels. I'm also satisfied with the uh, Genie Go, which is also in my house and connected up to my TV and connected up to my DirecTV connection so I can watch DirecTV channels and download them to my computer. Uh, unlike many other trips, that we actually have pretty good internet here so that we can actually see and use these in, these devices. Other times I have not been able to. A little bit later on, uh, we're going to be taking a cruise uh, to Fort Lauderdale from Southampton. That's our main motivation for coming over here. We figured coming, is how we're coming home. Yeah, we figured as long as we are coming over here, we may as well come a few weeks early uh, to take the cruise. But we're taking the Oasis of the Seas, and apparently the Oasis of the Seas has been recently updated with uh, new satellite internet technology, which is in low-Earth orbit satellites, and they are talking like the satellite connection is as fast as a landline connection. And this leads me to believe that possibly in the future we will be able to have the same sort of thing available for our veers. Why not? Rather than going 22,000 miles into the space and back, why not use low Earth's orbit? Because you have to be able to track them. But, heck, that seems like it should be feasible. If they can do it from a moving ship, you'd think that they could do it uh, from an RV. Reviews to follow. So if you are thinking of having TV over the Internet, the... Direct TV, Genie Go, and the Simple TV are two very nice devices that will let you watch any place in the world, and that's cool. One might ask why one travels to other parts of the world to watch American TV from home, but outside of its cool factor, the fact that we can do it, um, I must say, even with a, a TV programming in a country where I can understand every word, um, it is, is really nice, nice to stay in touch with what's going on at home. And when you're gone for a long time, as we often are, uh, it's nice to be able to have a bit of home 
as far as the media is concerned. Well, and it gets dark, and you have the evenings to spend, and you may as well watch stuff that you want to watch that's fresh from home. Frankly, I have not been overly impressed with British TV. A lot of game shows and a lot of schlocky reality shows. Yeah, you kind of get a misimpression about British TV because the things that we get tend to be PBS-type quality shows. And obviously they have those, but they have a lot of schlock and nonsense. And There were no commercials. No. (laughs) But it was pretty schlocky. Lowbrow, so to speak. Lowbrow, indeed. All right. uh, We got a nice email from somebody who said, I just recently started listening to your podcast last month starting from the first one that always blows our minds and I really appreciate you sharing all your great experiences and RV knowledge I'm still several years behind in the podcast but I'll probably catch up in the next few months I've always enjoyed camping and toyed with the idea of RVing for a long time but I've been thinking about it more seriously this past year I was wondering if any of the podcast episodes are devoted to financial planning and or the cost of living considerations while on the road I know you often talk about parks and park costs, park membership plans, gas prices, so I get a small part of the picture in each episode. The RV Dreams website you mentioned in one of your early podcasts has some great information on financial considerations. Thanks for mentioning them, by the way. How do these compare to your own experiences? How is she going to answer this? I would say number one is however much money you have, that's how much money you spend. (laughs) (laughs) And compared to the RV Dreams people, who I agree have a wonderful website for people that are just starting out to try to plan. By far better than ours. Um, They quit working when they were young and they do not have the luxury of having a steady pension as we do and some savings as we do and they are making a living as they're going along the road which forces them to be considerably more thrifty than I think we are. We were in education all our lives so while we had a comfortable living we were never well paid and so we kind of got in the habit of living thrifty and cutting corners and, and looking for things to do that are fun that don't cost a lot and that's kind of turned out to be who we are. You talk about a budget for us? Well, I th- my <laughs> we don't budget as a rule. We just decide we want to do stuff and we do it. Are not extravagant, but we do the things we like to do. And we've decided that time is more important than money and so that at our stage of life at our, right this is a retiree speaking and that we have no reason to save and we want to get the most out of the time that we have left and so we are going to make the expenditures that we need to to do that however we don't go into debt that's that's a key and we, i would say a key mistake that newbies make is they run around trying <clears throat> to see everything and that costs a lot of money in terms of fuel and campgrounds are more expensive if you just stay at them for a night or two versus a longer period of time so just as we are doing here where we're staying in a condo for a week and touring the area we think that that's the best way as long as you have the time to approach various parts of the country rather than zipping around from the east coast to the west coast trying to see it all Uh, you miss a lot that way and it's expensive and tiring but basically our budget is fairly high, I would say. I mean, we get we have a stick and brick house, we have a, a very nice motor home, we travel six or eight months out of the year, much of it outside the country, so that you know that's our lifestyle and that's what we do. We don't really think about the dollars. 
In terms of things like food, I would say our food bill is very similar to what it is at home because when we travel in the RV, I cook most of the time. We eat out when we're in a special place or for a special occasion, so we don't spend a lot more money on food than we do at home. Uh, that, that's exactly right, and uh, it, it's clear to me that uh, we value the dollar. We try not to waste it, but we don't mind spending it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That when we go down to Florida, we see how expensive the the campgrounds are. We say, "Wow, we're we not here? getting value for our dollar." When we go out to Arizona, the campgrounds are just the same, very nice campgrounds, and half the price. We're talking about in the winter. Yeah, so, well, overall, Florida's very expensive. And so this year we're going to Florida for the winter because we have family considerations that take us east, but all things being equal, that would not be our first choice because the value for the dollar isn't there. The value, right, and that that's the really the key. I think we value the dollar as much as anybody, but we have just more dollars to spend. But we try to get the maximum uh, out of it as we can. We don't go out and buy $40 bottles of wine. And we don't uh, spend big bucks on on meals eating it, eaten out. We consider that to be a waste. But you know, everybody has their own their own values. I know I place a high value on the technology, so I have a lot of technology. We spend a lot of money on technology. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> and I would say, when it comes to clothing, you need less kinds of clothing and you can't have a lot of clothing because you don't have room for it in your rig anyway so yeah but we have a house yeah you know, so we can have as much stuff as we want yeah. i mean that that's the question is about kind of places us budgeting in the, in the for the rv category. lifestyle so, you know in terms of our and i think we drive a lot more miles too than other people do we appreciate uh, the comment from eric and we will keep you posted Please send us questions, um, and this will be a very good topic for us to talk about on the Google uh, RV Navigator page, which, by the way, we're up to 207 members, which is uh, astounding wow. for us. <laughs> we have tried to keep uh, things active up there, and there's uh, quite a few comments. And if you have comments about our budget, we're not trying to be tricky and to be evasive. We just don't have anything to say about it, and I don't keep a, a written record <laughs> you know i the checkbook i haven't balanced the checkbook in, in years because we don't write any checks i guess we do what we want to do until the money runs out and then we stop doing it <laughs> which sometimes happens a little bit sooner than we'd like but basically we do pretty well other topics that i was going to talk about you know a lot of people have this interest in uh, take their analog pictures that they took with film either as slides or as negatives or as prints and they want to digitize them, and that's a great idea. And this is a project which I have ongoing. I have thousands of slides. And I've set up a rig with my digital SLR. You know, I didn't buy any special device. I, I had that at one time, a scanner or a slide scanner, which is another specialized device. But it's just so slow and tedious. It's much quicker these days just to capture your old photos with a digital camera by shooting with a camera, shooting the the pictures. But what you have to have is some sort of way of focusing very close and uniformly lighting the pictures from behind, especially if they're slides. So I built, uh, I got a little, <laughs> for less than $30, I bought a little tube and it hooks onto the front of my macro lens for my DSLR, and that was uh, that works out well. But I read this this cool article, which I'm going to share with you, of making a little device for the front uh, for the camera on your 
a smartphone. And wouldn't it be cool just to digitize it with a phone that everybody has? And this is a DIY where you make it yourself and you can build a slide copier. And, you know, the new phones have, you know, 8 and 12 megapixel cameras, so they're nice cameras. They work well, and they will make great copies of your original pictures, whether they're slides or negatives or prints. So this is a, a, a nice way for you to do this, and and it's very inexpensive. And so if you've had this thought, and as winter months come up here, and you have a few minutes, you might want to take a take a look at this article. I will, of course, have this on the episode webpage for this month, which is October 2014. And we're also going to put a, a link up to an article from Travel and Leisure magazine uh -huh. that talks about America's yes. most scenic campgrounds. Uh, we get questions sometimes about how do you choose a campground and certainly looking for um, ideal locations and great scenery for avid photographers as we are is one way to do it. And they're one of their first ones is, is on the north rim of the, the Grand, Grand Canyon. The north rim? Mm -hmm. Oh, I thought it was the south rim. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Oh, we haven't been there. Mm -mm. <laughs> and then they also mentioned the, the south one, rim one is very nice. On the Oregon coast, on uh, the Badlands, and one in, in the middle of a swamp in Georgia. So The Okefenokee? No, not a different one. <laughs> So um, that might give you some ideas about places to drive your rig and put your feet down. Yes, indeed. Everybody with some great tips about maintaining their rig. And there's an article that I found that's called 10 Simple Tips to Help Maintain Your Rig. It starts off with lubrication. Getting stuff lubricated. Great idea. Go around and tighten stuff, even things like your lug nuts on your wheels. The article mentions that when you drive your rig down the road, it's as if putting your house <laughs> through an earthquake every time you drive, which is a rather vivid way to think about what it's going through. And we always are having nuts and bolts falling out of things. And so, you know, even the, the appliances that are inside your rig need to be <laughs> checked for integrity every once in a while. Clean it. Oh, yes. And we know from scratches on our floor that if we don't keep them clean, that w our rollers will scratch the floor. Your tires. Oh, yes. You want to keep the tires. You know, that's the number one cause of accidents is low pressure on your tires. And that because they blow out, they get hot and very critical there. And we have now on our rig, we have uh, eight tires. So I've got a lot of work to do to keep those tires. And that's why I have the tire pressure monitor system. And the other thing, of course, with tires is that the rubber gets um, fatigued from sunlight. And so whenever you park for any length of time, you want to keep them covered. Exactly. Um, so seven, eight years on a set of tires is about all you should use them if they've been sitting out. And you can tell by looking at the DOT code on the side to see when they were manufactured. And, of course, always buy new tires. There's been more than one story about people buying tires that have been sitting on somebody's shelf for a couple of years, and so they're buying two-year-old tires when they think they're buying new tires. So. The tread looks good, but the rubber is rotten. Tanks. Keep your tanks in good shape. Clean. Well, you want to purge your, your freshwater tank every once in a while and shock it with a little bit of bleach. And uh, there are many articles about that. And, of course, your black tank, you want to keep from getting the pile of goo in the middle from the toilet and clean it out regularly. And the gray water tank, keep it smelling good. Exercise all of your systems. 
One thing we have discovered as now having bought two slightly used rigs is one of the worst things you can do for your RV is to not use stuff because stuff needs to be used or it kind of freezes into place. Could be the slides, could be the hitch, could be the fantastic fans, could be the generator. Um, Could be the the jacks. Make sure you're using all the stuff that's on your RV. And get out and use it. And if it sits for months at a time, you better go out and just, you know, put those slides in and out and put the antenna up and do those things just to, and, you know, exercise the batteries and stuff, too. Batteries like to be used and to use them. That's a, a critical factor. Voltage checks. Oh, yes. I have this digital meter on my voltage, uh, my one of my plugs in the, in the RV, just to keep track of the voltages. And if they go low or if they go high, you've got to disconnect yourself. Of course, having a uh, energy monitoring system is also a line monitoring system is also good that will automatically connect you or dis- disconnect you if there's a problem. But electricity is not electricity and <laughs> you're so used at home just turning stuff on and making it's it It's so easy. <laughs> when you're in the RV and the wife turns on the electric stove, the electric burners and starts to stuff starts other things and then I watch the voltage going down that this is unique to just RV. I mean, it's just us. And so this, the voltage starts to go down because we are using too much of, of electricity. We're at the end of the line. So it's not really that it's that it's wired wrong. It's just that there isn't enough electricity uh, at the end of the line. So you need to watch that. Now, if you want to know more detail about this, of course, go to our episode webpage and take a look at the actual article with more details about this. Another link we're going to put on the webpage may make you laugh or cry, depending on your point of view. Certainly one of my fondest memories of camping on the Gulf Coast in Texas was an area where we were able to put our RV right down on the sand and park on the beach, keeping an eye out for the surf, but the sand was so firm and hard that we could drive in and out with impunity and it was a wonderful experience to fall asleep with the sound of the waves. So what we're putting up on the webpage is a video from someone who had an experience somewhat less idyllic than our own. (laughs) And you see the RV floating. So in the next month uh, we will be heading off to uh, other parts of Cornwall and then we spend a week in London and then we sail for 12 nights on the Oasis of the Seas back to the United States and we will be in Fort Lauderdale before Halloween. And then it'll be time to make another podcast. <laughs> so next month you're going to hear lots more about this. But about we, England. Non, but we will non-RVing be, information. So we will be home uh, and we will be adding spooky stories to the RV Navigator for the Halloween podcast. Uh, without further ado, we will, well, we'll be seeing you in a campground near us in the near future. Well, maybe if you're camping in Cornwall, we might pass by. Well, you know, we have had some British, oh, that would be very cool. Yeah, we have had some, had some British, British listeners. listeners. We met one on a cruise, didn't we? No, they were people who also camped. They're now listeners, right? Yes. So maybe they're listening to us now. And maybe Hello, Brenda and Graham. <laughs> We'll hope to hear from uh, some of you in the near future, and we will see you when we return to the U.S. Happy travels.